There's a lot of things in this old world That just do not make sense Like why there's so few believers on the firing line While so many others sit the fence But if you want to know where the word of God stands And believe it wants to use your feet and hands It's time to take your faith out of the seats And into the streets And come along with me If you'll only look Then you will see On WCN-TV friends. Dr. Mike Spalding here. This is WCN-TV. Thank you for joining me today. I've got a special guest for us, and, and you're going to love, you're going to love this man's heart and his vision and his concern for America. The founders of America, in fact, borrowed broadly from many thinkers across a, a spectrum of philosophy and, and even theology. If we were to distill their thinking, we might guardedly characterize them as a people who understood human nature and the need to form and fashion a government that would constrain that human nature um, and work within a system of checks and balances to offer the maximum freedom and liberty. Now, what's happened today is People have figured out how to break those bonds and escape that built-in constraint. Now, we could have conversations about morality. We could have conversations about um, government absolutism and what happens when, when governments are unchained from, from moral foundations. And we'll get into some of that today. If I was to state that another way, though, and, and this is coming from, from my guest today, Brent Hamachek, in, in an article that we're going to talk about, if I would state it another way, uh, and this is a quote, Brent wrote, people are capable of sustaining individual liberty only for as long as they can be constrained by a system of law that suppresses and contains their true nature. And that is spot on. I, I was reminded of what is attributed to Benjamin Franklin when he was asked what type of government the founders were giving to the people. He said, a republic if you can keep it. And of course, what Franklin was talking about was it takes a, a, an engaged citizenry with a moral foundation, and, and what he meant by that was a Judeo-Christian moral foundation. So we're going to talk about that in a whole wide range of things, where we are at today as, as a nation, as Americans, uh, what the outlook is, some of the things that we need to, sp to pay special attention to, and, and my hope and my prayer uh, after after reviewing and, and, and reading Brent's material, my hope is that you'll become encouraged to get engaged in the process. And that is so very important for us. So so without further ado, Brent Hamachek, thank you for joining me here on WCN TV today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. I love the I love the lead in. I I almost feel like I could say that that's great. Nice, nice to be a guest and uh, see you next time because so much of that it feels like exactly what I what I would have said. So, uh, well put. I, I enjoyed it. 
Well, thank you very much, uh, Brent. So, so I was, uh, I received an email um, with, with this article in it and I thought, oh, this sounds interesting. Uh, the title of that article, Understanding and Embracing the Role of the 21st Century Dissident. Now, that immediately, the word dissident, Brett, that, that, that perked me up because I thought, oh, mm. I have to find out what the angle is here. What, what is, how is he going to approach this? And um, so, so I, I read it and I thought, wow, this is exactly where we're at. This is a perfect analysis. And um, my hope is, and, and maybe you can share that with us as we get started in this conversation, Brett, but my hope is that this article, and it has been broadly uh, published, it was actually published on another site before Human Events published it. But I'm hoping that it awakened uh, a good number of Americans to the plight that we're currently in. Um, it is very, very important, friends, that we understand the freedoms and liberties that that we have become uh, very accustomed to and, and, and maybe unaware that they're slipping away. Although, having said that, I, I wonder how could anybody not see that? those things are slipping away, um, be that as it may, we have to understand where we're at today as a culture, as a nation, if we're going to, to engage our culture and, and turn this ship around in the, in the opposite direction. We're actually in very dangerous times, Brent, in my opinion. Would, would you agree with, with that statement that these are very perilous times? Yeah, we're in we're in very perilous times. I think a lot of people would agree with that. What they might not necessarily appreciate is uh, they might think that we got here suddenly. And then if we got here suddenly, they might think that we could get out suddenly. Right. That's the the converse. Well, this just happened so we can just reverse this. Uh, But the truth is, we've been on this path now for well over 100 years. We've been on the downward slide towards collectivism. And all that's happened over the past few years is that a string of events have created inflection points that have sort of accelerated our descent, uh, but the path hasn't changed. So uh, not only do we have to work on reversing course, but we have to understand that there's over 100 years of momentum built. So it's going to be a very long game and it's going to require a lot of work and a lot of perseverance, right? So we're not going to be able uh, to turn this thing around overnight. Yes, one of the one of the points that you made, and and well, I highlighted a bunch of stuff, Brent, as I read through the article. I highlight and I actually bolded some things because I thought, well, we we need to make sure that we touch on that. But but one of the things that really uh, hit home for me, um, and I know a lot of people, this is going to come as a surprise to them, um, but we simply don't have the same voice, the same exposure, nor do we have the same rights as a good many of our fellow citizens. And and you make that point, and I wonder if you'd elaborate on why that's true. So one of the things that's very difficult for people to get their arms around is, uh, you know, they'll point to the fact that, well, we have a constitution and, and we have these laws. And, you know, how many times have you, have you heard, maybe even said yourself, had your uh, program listeners uh, say, you know, well, they just can't do that, right? It's a pretty common phrase. They mm-hmm. they look at the Constitution or they look at a state statute or a federal statute and they say, well, they can't do that. And yet they do it. And that's because these written laws that we have, even going as far as our Constitution, are really only as good as the willingness or lack of willingness of the people who are there to enforce them make them the great old line about how many legions has the Pope. Um, there's, there's a great deal of truth to the fact that if you control, if you control the weaponry of the state and the enforcement powers, then yes, there's laws and yes, you're supposed to enforce them equally for all, but it doesn't mean that you will. And so increasingly what we've seen in, in our country is that the power structures uh, inside of the country have taken aim at those of us who believe, believe in such archaic notions as you know free markets and private property rights and first principles, individual liberty, a strong America, 
all of these things that are, you know, gosh, it's just so arcane to talk about. And that means that for people like us, we still do have the same rights on paper. The mm-hmm. Constitution still applies to us, but it's not being applied to us. Yes. And that means that we find ourselves in a position of inferiority and that uh, in terms of what we say and what we do, we might technically have the right to say it, but we don't get to say it and we don't get to do it uh, or we'll be silenced or we'll be locked up as has happened with the January 6th folks. Um, and it and it's been getting, getting progressively worse over time. Yes. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I've I've, I've pointed out on a number of different um, platforms and different times is that I'm old enough to have witnessed, experienced, in fact, the, the change in the definition of words and the application based on those new definitions and tolerance is one of those, one of those things. Um, as a young man, tolerance meant classically that you have a right to voice your opinion. I have a right to disagree with that opinion, but we're going to defend each other's rights to have opposing opinions. Well, that's not the definition of tolerance, and it sure isn't the application of it today. Tolerance is you can only say, we'll only tolerate those things that are, uh, could we say, officially approved, culturally acceptable, that the government gives their stamp of approval, anything outside those boundaries. And we know what happens. You're going to be deplatformed or, or censored, or uh, in the case of some journalists, uh, violently attacked. That's where we're at today. Right. Well, look, tolerance only works up until the point that one side or the other realizes they don't have to anymore. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's sort of what we run into, right? That, that the, the folks on the other side, have discovered that they had the power uh, to not have to tolerate us anymore. And, you know, it goes back six years ago. I I wrote a book with Charlie Kirk, and we talked in the opening chapter about this notion of political correctness. And we likened that to almost the invention of the crossbow by the Chinese in something like 700 Mm -hmm. BC or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. Because that weapon was was so incredibly powerful. I mean, the Chinese would even execute any of their members who let it slip into enemy hands. They knew what they had. Political correctness has become the crossbow of modern day politics because what it showed to the intolerant folks on the other side is not only would they use the power of the state and the power of institutions to shut us down, but they used the power of ourselves. So that's what uh, you know political correctness is. It's self-censorship. And we've fallen victim to it. We've surrendered our language to them. We've surrendered our behavior to them. I mean, how many of your of your listeners tell you, uh, gosh, I want to say something at work, but if I do, X, mm-hmm. Y, and Z will happen. I'll lose my job, my position, my friends, whatever it might be, the next promotion. And so we censor ourselves. And this goes back to the notion of having to act like dissidents. There's not a whole lot different. There's some things different. But there's things very, very similar to what we saw in Eastern Europe elsewhere, but in the last half of the last century. And, you know, we just did an incredible event out in California with the Liberty Forum of Silicon Valley back in March. And we had we did something nobody's done before, which seems kind of incredible. Uh, But we had five dissidents, one from Cuba, one from Vietnam, one from the Soviet Union, one from East Germany, one from Czechoslovakia. And they sat on a panel together that I was blessed and humbled to moderate. And they shared their stories about what they went through. And they likened what they lived through uh, to what they're seeing happening in the United States today. And, you know, one of those things was, was people being unwilling to stand up and push back against the state. And the other was the people within the state, their friends, their family, um, turning them in. And, and tattling on them, giving names. We're seeing this stuff not just happen in the United States today, but we're seeing it be encouraged by leaders in the United States. Yes. Our FBI has done it on social media. Uh, government leaders all through the, the pandemic were telling their citizens on social media, turn in your neighbors. 
uh, in the town where I live in a Chicago suburb. I had a police officer tell me in middle the middle of 2020 that 90 percent of the phone calls they had coming into the police station were neighbors turning in neighbors. Wow. So we're this is this notion of having to act as dissidents and realize that things are stacked against us and that we're going to have to undertake some level of personal risk, place ourselves at risk uh, in order to push back steadily, relentlessly, persistently, like the people in the Soviet Union did, like the people in Poland uh, and elsewhere, right? So this is this is our task. Um, this is what we're called upon to do. It's the situation we put ourselves in, by the way, by neglecting things for over 100 years. Yes. Yes, yes. And thank you for elaborating on that, Brent, because that was going to be a, a follow-up question for our viewers' sake. Um, define what do you mean exactly by dissident? Because what you don't mean, let, let me let me let me approach this in, from the negative aspect. What you don't mean is being deplatformed by by Facebook because they didn't like a post. It, it's much more than that. Right. I, you know, I was asked this question uh, a couple of weeks ago during an interview, and it was it kind of struck me because sometimes you're asked to define something that to yourself seems so evident that you realize perhaps you hadn't gotten around to defining it. So I think the key um, notion about the difference between, say, being a dissident and being a protester, let's do it that way. Okay. You know, you think of a protester and there's somebody, you know, there's going to be a rally on, on the steps in a week or something, and they show up and they bring a sign and maybe they paint their face a silly color and they yell and scream at a camera and, and then they go home and they make dinner and they sit down in front of their, you know, 25K TV or whatever it is and, and enjoy Netflix uh, mm -hmm. or not enjoy Netflix based on today's news about Netflix yeah. stock and viewership. Yeah. That's, that's that protester. They're sort of event driven. It's a discrete function, but for a dissident, we're talking about more of a continuous function. And it is adopting uh, a sort of way of life where you are relentlessly, steadily, and with force pushing against the walls of the system that oppress you. And it becomes a way of existing that is, uh, to borrow a, a phrase from my, my half-Catholic self, it's on your mind, at your lips, and in your heart all the time. So it's uh, you don't rest. It is a state of rest, really, being a dissident. So you've got to be at it perpetually, but smartly. And it's not just a show up here and there every once in a while for some nifty event just to be a protester. So think of it more as a, a state of being. Yes, yes. And, and I think a key concept as well is you are, you are placing yourself at risk, personal right. risk. Yes. Yeah. Right. So, so Brett, I know you've heard this. We, there, 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 there are many, many more of us than them. So what's the problem? Let's just, let's just force our way and force them out and, and, and take over. Well, what's, what's the reality? <laughs> right. So the reality is, you know, and this is, so this is a fun thing because, we get talked about as being the silent majority. Well, Dr. Phil might say, how's that working for you being silent? <laughs> That's uh, but let's assume that we are a majority. By the way, I'm not willing to concede the point, but I'll assume it for discussion purposes. Yeah. Let's yeah. assume there's more of us than them. Well, if there are, it's not just a numbers game, right? We don't have what I call the same political atomic weight. So if we take a look at the other side, let's and let's think about this sort of militarily. What positions have they secured? Well, they own all of academia, K through college. They own the entertainment industry. They own the mainstream media. They own almost all large city municipal governments. They own the federal bureaucracy. Uh, so they have secured for themselves. In, oh, and they own the, the corporate board, boardroom structures in our major corporations. Yes. So they have positioned themselves strategically in a way that whether we have them outnumbered or not, they have us out positioned. And that means that anywhere we go, and I mean, I mentioned earlier about, you know, speaking up in the workplace. 
Well, if you work in one of the Fortune 500 companies, um, there might be a majority of employees inside your particular company that uh, feel the way you do. The problem is if you speak up, you get fired mm -hmm. because the people that run the place that have the actual power, well, they tend to be these folks with this sort of collectivist notion. Mm -hmm. So uh, we have to stop taking comfort in the, in the fact or position fact that there's more of us than them. And we certainly can't keep going around with pride, calling ourselves the silent majority. You know, all we need to do is remember that Richard Nixon gave us that term and we can leave it there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's right. So one of the uh, points that you made, you, you made many great points, but, but another one that rang true for me is that uh, being a dissident really isn't about the, the 2020 election that that is irrelevant for, right. for, for the, the place where we're at right now. And, and I think it's actually detrimental to what we, we need to do as dissidents today for this nation, it's actually detrimental because it's 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 pulling resources, energy, focus, all of those things someplace that it doesn't need to be. So um, why is that the case, Brent? Because I know that a lot of folks, they're still hanging on to this hope. I, I don't understand it myself, but they're still hanging right. on to this hope that something's going to be overturned and reversed. Right. Well, and look, I, I think part of that is... Um, that sometimes if things seem to be so completely and totally inexplicable and so obviously flawed and unfair, that then what we try to do is construct something in our mind in order to make sense of it, right? It's, it's, it's sort of a rationalization almost, right? And I mean, I think that's, that's what it is. Yeah. But uh, Donald Trump's not going to be president again unless he's president in January of 2025. It's not happening. Right. He's not coming back. That's right. You know, there's a there's a danger, by the way, with uh, from the with the Trump uh, presidency thing, and that is this incredible cult of personality that he has built, that have his many of his supporters so loyal to him that they lose track of being loyal to maybe his ideas or more importantly. To the, to the country that he worked so hard to try to save. I, I have great respect for what he did as president, for stepping into the race. Uh, I have respect for all of it. But cult of personality is not usually, always a very dangerous thing because mm -hmm. if we lose the personality, then we're lost. Yeah. And, and so with regard to the 2020 election, Whatever anybody thinks of it. I mean, do I think that there was election fraud? Absolutely. I don't think there is. We know there was. There's evidence yeah. of it everywhere. Yeah. The mainstream media, which acts like the TASS news agency, you know, mm -hmm. it, it's like in the old Soviet Union where they used to give the agriculture report, you know, you know, comrades, I, we, we regret to tell you that we've just experienced our 70th consecutive year of drought, right? That was why the, the harvest yeah. was so bad. Yeah. Well, uh, so there's evidence of election tampering everywhere. Do I think it was enough to flip the election? Yeah, it probably was. Mm -hmm. Does it matter? We need to live in the world of one single word, and that word is next. Yeah. All of our focus needs to be on trying to prevent what happened in 2020 yeah. from happening in 2022 and 2024, because 2020 is over with and done. There is no chance whatsoever, less than zero, whatever that number would be, yeah. uh, that that Donald Trump's going to be put back into office. It's not happening. Yeah. And so when the longer people obsess over the notion, the longer they're out of the fight, because anybody who's fighting to try to overturn the 2020 election isn't actually in the fight. They're just doing something. Yes. Yeah. And uh, so uh, final point on that, if I could, just uh, talking about this being a long game. Mm -hmm. Even if Donald Trump it runs for president and is elected in 2024, here's the part that I stress all the time. And that is, so, okay, so what do we get? 
well, we get four more years of Donald Trump. We just had four years. He wasn't able to do much of what he wanted to do. He spent a lot of time fighting, but in terms of actual accomplishments that stuck, everything's been wiped out in the first year of the Biden presidency. So what do we do after 2028? Then what? And I get terrified at the notion sometimes of the Republicans taking control of the House and Senate in 2022. And I'll tell you why. It's because I'm afraid that if we do, a whole bunch of folks are going to sit back, kind of rub their hands and say, there, we did it. See, we reversed everything, right? And and they'll all go back to their high-definition televisions, Mm -hmm. and they'll forget that it's taken us over 100 years to get here. We're not going to win this in an election. It's not going to happen. That's that's right. Yeah, that's right. And and and, and that's a good segue into the next um, area of focus or, or questions that I have. Folks need to understand that this was a, a long process that's been going on for a century or more that brought us to this place today. It wasn't the Biden presidency. Now, now what's happened in the last couple of years has has accelerated the descent. There's no question about that. And and Brett, you mentioned three things in, in this article. And again, folks, I am talking with the managing editor of Human Events, Brent Hamakek. And uh, we are talking about his article, Understanding and Embracing the Role of the 21st Century Dissident. Fantastic article. I, I, I would encourage you to go to humanevents.com. Thank you for that, uh, producer. Uh, you can go out there and read this article. Um it's, it's a fantastic synopsis of, of where we are at currently. And, and the thing that I like about this, uh, Brent, is that uh, you don't just, uh, it's, it's not a, it's not a, a diatrab. It's not, a, it's not a, a rant. It's not a whining and crying. It's actually, hey, here's the, the uh, uh, climate and here's some solutions. Here, here's some steps to, to try to write the course. And, and if, and if we don't take these steps, well, then uh, we're done. And, and so I, I, I liked it for a number of reasons, but especially that. So, so you listed three triggers, Brent, um, three triggers that aided this where we're at now, this rapid descent into, well, frankly, uh, a reality I, I never envisioned for America in my life. I never thought we would be in this place. But so, so, so the first one is 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 of course the the Chinese uh, coronavirus that played a huge part in really this rise of totalitarianism. Right. So what what the pandemic did is first of all it settled some questions that philosophers have been kicking around from for 2,400 years or so. And, and that is kind of this whole thing about what's the nature of man. Mm. If anybody from your show writes me an email, I write back to everybody. And when they do, they'll note in my signature line, it says, P.S. Hobbes was right. <laughs> Thomas Hobbes, the, the very dark English philosopher born in uh, 1588, the year of the Spanish Armada, uh, warned us about our nature. And, you know, he mm-hmm. said we, we really weren't very good deep down inside and uh, that we were fearful and we're like sheep. And then the, mm-hmm. there's others that are willing to take advantage of that sheep-like uh, nature of man. Uh, you know, the debate about the nature of man goes all the way back to Plato and Aristotle. Now, yes. Plato was a much more tolerant professor, by the way, uh, than the ones we have today because he actually allowed Aristotle to disagree with him. But we learned during the pandemic that we are really, truly fearful creatures and, and that we'll do hateful things to take advantage of the fear. And we saw our leaders do it. I mentioned earlier, you know, the, the local politicians where I live, the mayors of some of the towns were going on Facebook and encouraging people to turn in their neighbors and turn in their mm-hmm. family members. It's terrible stuff, right? Yeah. So um, what it did is it frightened so many people, so many people that they basically turned and looked towards government, just as Hobbes said they would. And they said, protect us, save us, keep, keep us safe, do whatever you need to do. And of course, this is the, the mindset of a slave. Mm-hmm. In that panel discussion I mentioned that we had out in California, Tatiana Menneker, who's from the Soviet Union, uh, she's a Jewish refusenik who was arrested she stood up in front of the audience at the end and she said, this is not the America that I came to. 
She said, you're a nation of cowards. And she said, you have to remember that masters don't make slaves. Slaves make masters. Well, the American people made a lot of masters uh, during the pandemic. And they turned on one another with a ferocity uh, that, you know, we've, we've seen in other totalitarian settings. Yeah. So that, that made us pliable. That made us very, very open to this totalitarian uh, uh, influence. Yes. Um, and then the, the next event was, of course, the, the 2020 election and everything that led up to it that ripped us apart at the seams mm -hmm. as people. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, watching the, the obvious cheating taking place, uh, people being powerless to do anything about it, but more, more importantly was the willingness to cheat, right? And we're just sort of flaunting uh, the system. And th that felt, it all had very much the feel of a rigged election, either in a banana republic or in a Eastern European republic you know, uh, a few years ago. And so uh, the election destroyed our faith in uh, the government and allowed people that are wanting to control to take control. The pandemic made us very, very pliable as people. But then there was the final piece, and that was January 6th. And I wanted to point out to your, your audience that I actually wrote this piece in January of 2021. We republished it in Human Events this year, but I wrote it right after January 6th. And I was put in mind of what happened in Cuba back at the turn of the end of the 20th century when William Randolph Hearst had his reporter down in Cuba watching events and they thought there was going to be this, this really good bloody war. And the reporter got a hold of Hearst and he said, Mr. Hearst, there's really nothing happening here. And Hearst said to him, look, you give me pictures and I'll give you a war. Mm. Yes. What January 6th did is it took the images, the and we we all know how bogus this whole thing is. I mean, it's tiresome to talk about. Yeah. It, they talk about January 6th being an insurrection. If it was an insurrection, it was led by F Troop. If any of your audience members <laughs> right. are old enough to get the reference. Yeah. So it wasn't, I mean, it's just nonsense, right? And anyone yeah. who says it is either a liar or an imbecile or an odd combination of the two. Mm -hmm. So they, but they had the pictures and they were able to turn to those frightened people who had now become so pliable uh, to the notions of a strong government taking care of them and say, look, see, see what these evil people are doing. This is a threat to you a threat to our democracy, which by the way, we've never had, and we've never had a democracy on purpose, right? right? We don't live in a democracy. <laughs> um, and, and so people looked at that and said, oh my gosh, well, well, this is awfully terrible. You, well, you better do whatever it is you need to do to protect us. This is, this is the, mm -hmm. the mindset of sheep or slaves, uh, as mm -hmm. Tatiana would say. And uh, those, those inflection points taken together have really made more rapid our descent down in this uh, collectivist hole. Yes, yes. I want to share a quote from, from the article, Brent. Um, and this is summarizing those three inflection points that you just mentioned. Um, and here's the quote. Over a period of less than 12 months, the American body politic was given a mainline injection of an emotional cocktail that included fear, guilt, dependency, revenge, anger, class struggle, oppression, and even empowerment for those joining the cause. We created what Charlie Kirk calls micro tyrants, people of normally limited status who by virtue of their position were able to exercise authority over others wear your mask, keep your distance, and so on. These were people used to feeling of limited significance who were suddenly given the ability to be part of something bigger, something that was moving, something that had force. That is, that is a money quote right there, Brent, because that is a beautiful summary of, of, of what we experienced as Americans. We let me just throw one one example out and um 
flight attendants becoming almost um, unbearable. Well, they were unbearable. Some, a handful, actually throwing people, getting people listed on no-fly lists simply because they had a mask down below their nose. I know someone personally that had that happen to them. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, that's exactly what you're describing. People, and, and, and Hobbes, you're right. Hobbes was right. Human mm-hmm. nature mm-hmm. is what it is. And, and our founders understood that. I think that the enemies of America, Brent, if I can call them enemies, they understand it as well. And they're using it. They're manipulating that human nature for their own benefit. The tragedy of that is that those who are joining, as you mentioned in the article, the cause and thinking that they have some type of moral superiority for doing so, they're what Lenin would call useful idiots. Right. Yeah, they do well, speaking of the Soviet Union, they do well to remember Stalin's purges, the last one of which came after the academics who supported them in the first place. Uh, look, look, the the airlines are a great example of that that micro tyrant piece. I love that term that that Charlie came up with uh, mm-hmm. to describe them. Uh, you know, if Hobbes was right, Freud was writer. And you know what I what I like to say is that uh, the id is loose, and we are uh, we have been sanctioned as a people to be able to go after others and to be told that we're doing so as part of helping the greater good. Mm-hmm. Imagine this. So everyone who's ever talked about the greater good in the history of the, the notion has talked about the greater good being something that could be realized because humans by their nature are generous and kind and benevolent. It's only things like private property or capitalism that make us bad. So here we are letting people channel their hatred to enforce and and promote the greater good. I can almost stop there, right? I mean, you can sort of sense the irony. Yes. Um, And it it is really the problem with all sort of, you know, utopian notions, because all of them rely on the fact that once we get to this place with, with no government, no rules, no structure, that it'll all work because we're naturally kind and gentle. But, you know, I always argue that if we get to that point without rules and government and we're not nice by our nature, then what we really have is Jeff Goldblum and the fly, right? So we're sort of part part man and, and part fly DNA, and we all know what he looked like towards the end of the movie. That's right. So um, anyway, we, we, we did let people uh, channel that inner aggression they got to be somebody. They got to exercise dominion over others. Again, it's, it just seems to be our nature. The regular average person goes through life with no chance to do that, right? The closest they come is they get to boss their kids around. Uh, but here we gave them state-sanctioned authority, and we yeah. saw what they did with it, and it was hideous. It was hideous. Amen. Amen, Brent. It was hideous. It just it reminds me of what Thomas Sowell calls uh, virtual virtuosity, but I would say that on steroids in, mm-hmm. in this instance. So um, uh, producer, let's, let's put up that, that graph that I sent you. Um, Brenna, I think this would be a good place to, to show our viewers the circles of power and influence in today's America. And because this fits, this fits beautifully within the article and it, and it, and it gives a, a pictorial representation of, of what you talk about, what we've talked about so far, and we still have a lot to go. Um, so, so I'm wondering if you could just walk us through this, this graph and what that is picturing for us. Sure. I, I originally drew this literally on the back of a piece of scratch paper, and then I took a picture of it on my phone and sent it to my graphic arts person. I said, could you make this actually look intelligible for me? <laughs> uh, and, they, and this is what they rendered. So it, uh, it looks good. Fun story here. about this. Before I explain it, I was sitting at a breakfast uh, in the fall of last year with someone who was visiting from out of town. And they were quite excited because they were telling me about a meeting they were at in Colorado. Uh, and they were involved in this activist group. And uh, I said, our group leader put up this big diagram in the front of the room. And uh, she started to explain it to us and how this structure. And she started to describe it to me. And she said, and I put it on my social media. I took a picture and 
Uh, she said, I just think it's so great. And I said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Show me the picture. And she turns her phone around and, and there is this diagram. <laughs> and and I, I just had a laugh. I said that she said, is that yours? And I said, it belongs to the world now. But yeah, I created it. <laughs> so this very simple structure has made a lot of sense to a lot of people, uh, mm-hmm. whether they've read about it or if I use it um, at, a, at a lecture I give. So these are circles of power. And in the center, of course, we have government. We have government at all levels. It's at the core. But it's at the core almost a bit by default. It's at the core because it's government that gets to pass laws and enforce them. Right? It's the only sort of entity that gets to do that. Mm-hmm. So it has to be uh, at the core. But this diagram is not drawn to scale because wrapping the government, you see large institutions. Mm-hmm. We live in a very interesting time where authoritarian, totalitarian power is really, of course, it comes from government, but it's being driven into government by large institutions. I mean, let's think about it this way. Who has more influence, the government over the New York Times or the New York Times over government? I would argue it's the latter. So this isn't the task news agency, really. It's not Pravda on the Hudson. It's actually sort of flipped. It's like, our, our news media, our large institutions are driving the behavior of government. Mm-hmm. This is something nobody ever really contemplated, would be the voluntary implosion of capitalism, that it would start to actually eat and destroy itself. This is not even what Marx saw. This is something very different. So our large institutions, the social media companies, Fortune 500 companies, mainstream media, the entertainment industry, They are in this circle just outside of government. And these two are interacting uh, almost in unison. If nothing else, there's a feeding back and forth between the two, right? We can agree to that. Yes. The next two rings start to make this really interesting. And it actually will feed into a piece that I wrote that was published today on on April, the what is it, 19th, 19th. uh, with regard to a a program uh, called Common Ground. But on the next ring, we have supporters of oppression. And you'll notice there's two different shades of green. Mm -hmm. So the people that are in that circle closest to the large institutions, those are the individuals who are really actively in favor of this sort of totalitarian system, this idea that the few can best decide for and control the many. And they're engaged in it, and they're active in it. The next layer are the people who support the oppression, but they do so passively. I'd argue this is half the people that voted for Joe Biden, at least, or more, in 2020. These are people who don't un- literally don't understand. Forgive them, Father. They know not what they do or who they vote for. They support these policies because they're masked to sound good. There's great marketing. You know, the greater good sounds wonderful healthcare for all and so on. So they support these policies, but they don't do so in an active way. They're sort of passive supporters. Mm -hmm. As we move out from that, we've got the blue circles, but again, there's two shades. Right next to those, those non, those passive supporters of oppression are the more passive opponents of it. Your, your audience knows these folks. Some of them may be these folks. And by the way, Mm -hmm. there's no sin in being one of these folks. These are people who look around and say, this is awful. This is terrible. I don't like this. I don't agree with this. And they say, but I got to support my family. I got to keep my scholarship. I don't really know what to do. I'm afraid to fight. They know it's wrong, but they're not active in the game to try to fight back against it. And of course, then in the outer ring, I almost don't even have to finish because it's obvious. That's where the dissonance live. And those are the ones who are pushing back. Here's a key role for a rule, excuse me, for the folks uh, in your audience that I'd ask them to remember. For those of you who are active dissidents in the fight uh, and you see the people below you that you know who agree with you, but they don't want to get involved. If you look at these circles, you can see very clearly, here's what you should not do. Do not ridicule them. Do not shun them. Do not insult them. Do not make light of them. Don't call them cowards. Tell them it's okay. Tell them you've got this. Show them what you're doing. 
and maybe eventually they'll decide that maybe they can follow along. Maybe they can do something. Because if you ridicule them, guess what? Guess where they go? They don't go up. They go down. Mm -hmm. And we can't afford to have them go down. We can't turn blues into greens in this case. So for those who aren't strong enough or willing enough to join the fight, just say, look, it's okay. I've got you. And, and I'll do this for you, but please watch and join if you'd like. Uh, but we don't want to drive them away. Yes. Yeah. And that's, that's where the importance of conversation comes in. And, and it was a good point that you made. We work with, uh, so I would consider myself in that dark blue outer circle. Um, but I know people who, 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 are very firmly planted in the light blue circle. I even know some folks that are in the the shades of green circles. And those are the folks that, that we may work with and maybe our family members. In fact, um, they're our neighbors. You're, you're not going to, to your point, Brett, you're not going to, to win them or persuade them to our perspective by, by, attacking them by ridiculing them by 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 coming against them trying to front them that isn't going to that'll drive them deeper into into that position so we have to have conversations and and one of the best ways to to start a conversation and and move it in the direction mm-hmm. that that you desire it to go is to start asking questions right well that's one of the the points i brought out in the essay and and then that we're trying to actually now bring to life uh, my partner and I in our common ground program on college campuses. The, the two most uh, influential dissidents in human history, one on the secular side, one on the religious side, the two most, and it's not close, are Socrates and Jesus Christ. Because what they started, what came from them, has changed all of the entire world, has changed all of civilization for over 2,000 years. Mm -hmm. What did they have in common? They had two things in common. Number one, they were both killed for their dissidency. Mm -hmm. That's not so good. Uh, Number two, uh, they both changed the world by asking questions and did so brilliantly. And at least we assume Socrates asked questions because that's what Plato said he did. So... (laughs) Uh, so I do make a bit of an assumption, but I'm, I'm going to stick with it. Yeah. So we have to engage people, and this is the opportunity. So if you look at these two circles in the middle, government and large institutions, they're actually not real things, right? They're not a thing in themselves. You can't poke your finger into the shoulder of government, and you can't slap you know, Microsoft across the face. Mm-hmm. They don't exist. They're just simply... Right. Uh, structures comprised of humans. So our opportunity as we fight back against this structure is to know that these institutions aren't controlled by people. So we're ultimately trying to reach people. And that's what we're trying to do with the program that we've started called Common Ground, where last week we went uh, on the University of Georgia campus and we talked about race. And this is a program that... um, was created uh, by my partner, Felissa Blodjek, and myself, uh, and sponsored by Human Events. So Human Events has really got to emphasize the word events these days, things it's doing. Yes. So we talked about race, but we didn't debate it. So we had four students on a, a panel, and I moderated it. And what we did is beforehand, we talked to them about what do you see as the issues on campus that that are divisive as it relates to race, and they identified them. So during the course of an hour-long program, we talked about those issues. The audience was told that if anybody says the word you're wrong, the word you're wrong during the course of the evening, they all had to make a giant buzzer sound, right? (laughs) Nobody did, by the way. Uh, But the students were required to ask the other side questions, this whole idea of why, what is the issue that matters to you? Why does it matter? What do you think about this? Where are you coming from? What do you think needs to be done? And then they flip around and they do that in the other direction. We were asked, we asked them ahead of time, treat this as though this you're sitting down with your significant other and you don't want to lose them, but you can tell they're slipping away because when that happens, you're going to sit down and you're going to look at them and you're going to forget everything else in the world. And you're going to say, tell me what's wrong. 
I don't want to lose you. I want to listen. So what we need to start doing as Americans is engaging other Americans this way because we've gotten very, very good at insulting each other in the third person. The they's and the them's are this and that. And then we turn to others and, you know, somebody we know and say, oh, I, I didn't mean you. I didn't mean you. I meant somebody else. Right. I meant those other people. Yes. Well, this common ground approach is designed to personalize engagement so that people can't say they and them. They have to look at you and they have to ask you why. And you have to ask them why. And then you have to figure it out. Uh, because America's in, in danger of breaking up with itself, just like you could be with that significant other you don't want to lose. That's right. That's right. And um, so you also give uh, in, in this essay a few tips to follow on the path to becoming an effective dissident. So I just want to touch on a couple of those. We've covered most of them, which is which is a very good thing. That means okay. our conversation has been fruitful. Um, so I'm just going to read right past those. Um, but one of the things that we should we should practice and employ is is question everything and do it in front of others. So we want to we we, we want to drive conversation. We want to to hear responses because something I've learned, um, Brent, in in my life and conversing with other people who have different viewpoints than I do is that if you can you can ask some questions. And then they begin to share why they think the way they think. Sometimes they'll admit that the reason that they think a particular way is because of somebody else's influence on them. And they've never really thought through their position and why it makes sense for them. So it's an important, important uh, strategy to use. Now, this is one that intrigued me. Make predictions and let them be heard. So here you say, we who believe in individual liberty and free market capitalism know what happens when both are strangled at the hands of oppression. We know what happens, but the average citizen does not. This means we can predict things that will happen and share those predictions with others. There's, there's power in telling somebody if we, if we travel down this path much longer, Here's what we can expect to see. And then when we see it, that has an impact on people, doesn't it? Right, it does. So uh, one of the things going back to March of 2020, uh, one of the, sadly, by the way, one of the things that hit going back to March of 2020 was predict ahead of time virtually every single thing that was going to happen with regard to the pandemic to the point where, I had people apologizing to me in November for something I said in March that happened in June. Um, you know, and and so it's not, and it's not because I'm terribly smart. I'm just, I'm no smarter than the average guy. I'm probably at the mid-range or lower in, inside your own audience. But I do understand the notions of power and I understand how human beings uh tend to operate. And it wasn't complicated to look at this and then figure out what was going to happen next, what they were going to do. And so I tell everybody, and then it happened. And, you know, the number of times uh, to friends or others, I'd say, God, I just hate being right. And again, it's not because I'm really smart. It's because it was obvious. And what happens is for people who aren't in touch with these things, if you say, look, X just happened. That means Y is going to happen next. Mm -hmm. When Y happens, the people you share that with say, wow, Joe Smith, he, he said that was going to happen. You know, how, how did he know? Maybe he's, maybe he's onto something. Maybe, maybe he understands something. And so people will start to take notice and they'll start to listen to you and they'll start to inquire independently on their own. Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, understand that your focus must be forward, looking where you're going, not where you have been. We're we're not going to change that. And and you even say, listen, 2020, November 2020 is over. Let's let's get let's get beyond that now. Disengage, you know, emotionally. Stop funneling our energy and and our resources into that. And let's let's look forward and begin to implement strategies of of uh, communication 
and how we can we can win people, persuade people to our position because there there really is to to coin a phrase there really is power in numbers. Right. Yeah. And I mean, remember too, I wrote this in January of 2021, not 2022. Mm -hmm. So I was already trying to tell people to get past the election as early as right after. Actually, I think I wrote this, wrote it a few days before Biden's actual inauguration. It was Mm -hmm. published on January 27th, but I wrote it uh, a few days earlier. Anyway, uh, the, the point of it is that we always have to continue to look and march forward. Next is the operative term. Yes. I mean, if we drove a car like we lived our politics, we'd crash out of the driveway because we, we can't keep looking backwards in order to try to move things and improve things forward. That's right. Um, you know, people like to say history repeats itself. No, it doesn't. History does not repeat itself. It's one of those silly phrases, a lot of damage. It doesn't repeat itself. Things look similar in history sometimes. And they say, oh, this is really similar to what happened in the French Revolution. Right. But it's not right with no guillotine. Um, So so there's advantages in learning from the past, but there's a disadvantage in in trying to rely too much on it, thinking that things will repeat or cycle through. We can look at the past for guidance and information, but we need to be focused always on affecting next, right? So we live in a world of cause and effect. And so we need to be the cause of the next effect, next effect, not last effect. And by the way, the next effect will not be overturning the 2020 election. I don't say that with any joy. It's just, it's not going to happen. Yeah. That's right. So, so probably the last one we'll have time for, Brent. And this has been a fantastic conversation. I, it's been fun. I really, really enjoyed it. Thank um, you. And, and and this flies in the face of of what we've been conditioned um, to become. And, and it's this: there is no quick fixes. There aren't any silver bullets. Do not expect instant gratification, folks. This is going to be a long, drawn out process that if we are going to become the dissidents that this nation needs to to write the course, it's going to come over the long haul, isn't it? Right, it is. And and so the, the point I want to drive home here, and I don't really make this point in the essay, but I'll make it here for your listeners. And that is, we always like to go back and we want to say, where did this start, right? Mm-hmm. And and so people are saying, look at what happened in America. Well, look where we are. When did it start? And we try to put our finger On one thing, some people say the New Deal, some people say the creation of the Federal Reserve, everybody's got this one thing. Look at it differently, and then you'll understand what we're up against. There is no one thing that started this. There were, think of the wiring in a home where you have multiple rooms, all of which are wired for electricity, all of which have wires running throughout the entire span of your home. And then they all converge and they're bundled together. And in they go to that junction box. Where we are today is not the result of a single strand. It is multiple strands of collectivist wire that have run in different routes, but towards the same junction box. And they are all there. They're united in this moment. That's why it's so overwhelming. So to think that somehow or other we can unravel this and unwire this in a hurry, it's just not realistic. It's not going to happen. It's a long game. So be steeled and stay in the fight. And also, please try to find some common ground. Yes. Amen. Boy, that's a great way to end this conversation. Folks, I've been talking with Brent Hamachek. He is the managing editor of Human Events, humanevents.com. I would encourage you to go out and especially read this article, Understanding and Embracing the Role of the 21st Century American Dissident. Folks, that's you. (laughs) that's you understand who you are and what we're facing. We can turn this thing around, but it's going to take all of us together working for common ground. Brent, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, this was a pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. You're very, you're very welcome. God bless you friends. That's all we have for you on this week's edition of WCN TV. Please share this with your friends and we'll see you next week. God bless you. 